Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Billy the Kid. There will also be more information concerning my novel. Is that your final answer? Now let's get started with our story about Billy the Kid. As the young man sat in the outhouse behind the Lincoln, New Mexico jail, he thought to himself, there has to be a way. True, they never let him leave the back office that served as his cell without both leg irons and handcuffs on. But as he looked at them, he realized the handcuffs might be the key. At five foot eight and 140 pounds, Billy the Kid understood his scrawny wrists might be to his advantage. Even so, free hands alone would never get him out of this fix, not with two deputies watching his every move and Sheriff Pat Garrett around to back them up. He needed to wait for that perfect opportunity, when the numbers might be a little more in his favor, when instead of having to outwit and outfight three heavily armed, hostile, and suspicious jailers, he only needed to overpower just one. Garrett didn't seem to be around lately. In fact, he had left Lincoln to collect taxes. That left the two deputies, Bell and Ollinger. The kid hated Ollinger. He had killed one of his best friends and endlessly taunted Billy that it was only a few days before all of Lincoln County would turn out to see him hang. But besides his big mouth, Ollinger also was a lot bigger than Bell. Although he would love to have it out with that son of a bitch, Ollinger, Billy knew his best chance was against Bell. And Ollinger was right about something else, too. It was the end of April, and May 13th, 1881, the day of his scheduled execution, would be here soon. The kid, as he was actually known in those days, knew he was running out of time. Although Henry McCarty, a.k.a. Henry Antrim, a.k.a. William Bonney, a.k.a. Billy the Kid, never robbed a bank or a train, and never fought a traditional duel, he remains one of the most celebrated outlaws of the Old West. Over 100 films have portrayed him in various scenarios, ranging from predictable Western themes to plots even involving Count Dracula. He is the subject of music composed by the likes of Aaron Copeland, Bob Dylan, and even Billy Joel. Dead at the age of 21, The kid's exploits were national news in his own lifetime, despite the reality that he was essentially a 19th century gang member who merely possessed a penchant for dramatic and occasionally violent escape. While his later years have been endlessly analyzed, very little is known about the actual origins and early life of Billy the Kid. Because of his notoriety, Attempts to substantiate the actual facts concerning his birth and childhood have only intensified over time. These efforts 
have successfully established some fundamentals about the genealogy of one Henry McCarty, born most likely on September 17, 1859, in the city of New York. His parents, a father possibly named Michael or Patrick, and mother, Catherine McCarty, were Irish immigrants who fled their famine-ravaged homeland. When Catherine's husband died, she first moved with Henry and his younger brother Michael to the city of Indianapolis. There she met a man named William Antrim, which may have prompted her to begin referring to her older son as Henry instead of his actual first name of William or Billy. In 1870, this family unit migrated to Wichita, Kansas, where Billy's mother was able to prosper running a laundry and selling baked goods. What Antrim did wasn't specifically known, but it must have been financially rewarding enough to allow the family to purchase property and build a home. Unfortunately, this positive existence was darkened by Catherine's diagnosis of tuberculosis and medical advice to relocate to warmer weather. Initially, Antrim and the McCartys headed for Denver, but quickly proceeded to Santa Fe, New Mexico Territory. Antrim most likely intent on joining the hordes of prospectors flocking to the southwest to strike it rich. Catherine McCarty and Antrim also officially married in Santa Fe in March of 1873, but didn't stay in the area for long. They eventually migrated to the boom town of Silver City in the western region of the New Mexico Territory, this locale evolving from numerous tents pitched by inhabitants intent on extracting silver, recently discovered in a deposit near the settlement. Antrim, whose stepchildren assumed his last name, scraped out a living while also attempting to realize the fantasy of finding that one huge heap of silver that would make him permanently wealthy. Like most of his contemporaries, Antrim also got caught up in less productive pursuits like gambling. The less severe New Mexico climate did little for Catherine Antrim's chronic lung condition, and only a year and a half after her marriage, she passed away and was buried in Silver City. This development fractured whatever stability existed in her son's life, now known officially as Henry Antrim. William Antrim and his two sons moved into a boarding house owned by a local shopkeeper named Richard Knight. Knight ran a butcher store in town where Henry, approximately 14 years old, behaved like a relatively normal adolescent of the period. But William Antrim became less of a presence in Henry's upbringing as his father spent long periods roaming through the nearby Arizona Territory, attracted by information about additional prospecting opportunities. Henry was left to fend for himself, and the result was the beginning of an antisocial attitude that marked the rest of his life. He had his first experiences with the local sheriff, first over the theft of butter that was resold for some fast money, and then after his apprehension for stealing clothing from the local Chinese laundry. Let off completely after the butter heist, the sheriff wasn't as tolerant after the second offense, and Antrim was placed in the local jail to await indictment. He immediately evinced both a rebellious and resourceful attitude by escaping through the building's chimney while the sheriff was briefly absent. Although Antrim's escape was successful, this impulsive act left him no choice but to flee Silver City. 
There is actually no specific information as to where and what he fled to, but it is believed that he struck out for the more remote and less organized Arizona Territory just over the border from New Mexico. Henry worked first at a ranch and then at a hotel in the vicinity of an army post known as Camp Grant. The post's soldiers provided a need for commerce that included saloons, hotels, and various other commercial opportunities. It also precipitated a rough crowd of rustlers, petty thieves, and ne'er-do-wells who were ubiquitous throughout the Old West, and Henry fell right in with this crowd. His particular skill set involved stealing the saddles and occasionally the horses from the soldiers frequenting the local entertainment hotspots. One of these soldiers responded by chasing after Henry with other cavalry and overtook him near the town of Globe, Arizona. After he got his horse back, this cavalryman, a sergeant, went to the local justice of the peace and officially demanded Antrim's arrest. Henry Antrim was repeatedly arrested on this warrant, but was always able to escape from confinement in both the Camp Grant and Globe areas on several occasions. Perhaps emboldened by his ability to flout conventional authority, Antrim's defiant behavior evolved into something more sinister. On the loose in the Camp Grant area on August 17, 1877, he entered a saloon and encountered an individual named Francis Cahill. Known as Windy by the locals, Cahill had frequently amused himself by picking on Henry and physically abusing him in front of other saloon patrons. As soon as he saw Henry, he began his usual name-calling and intimidation, but on this occasion Antrim was having none of it. A fight started, and by the time it was over, Windy was shot in the midsection, dying shortly thereafter. Even in the violent environment of the Arizona Territory, this was a serious matter. A local jury immediately determined that Henry Antrim, alias Kidd, was to be detained until the territory's grand jury deliberated over a possible indictment for murder. The kid did not stick around for the predictable result. He fled Arizona and hid out for a couple of weeks at Richard Knight's ranch in Silver City. Figuring that the law might eventually look for him at this location, he then headed north. Although still only 17 years of age, Henry was no longer a child engaged in petty crime. Already exposed to the typical frontier mentality that pervaded environments like Camp Grant, where every male was armed, usually drunk, and socialized to never back away from a confrontation, McCarty was now a fugitive from justice. His rather slight frame concealed a potent and combustible personality already capable of extreme violence. However, Henry Antrim was not a one-dimensional thug. Many of his contemporaries describe him as cheerful, even charming, and bilingual in the Spanish language spoken by many of the inhabitants of New Mexico. This ability endeared him to the Latinos he socialized with, his interaction not marked by the condescension that typified most interethnic relationships of the time period. He could both read and write, perhaps a result of his urban roots and secondary school education. He dressed neatly in the dark wardrobe of the period, a contrast to many living on the frontier who were typically filthy and dressed in rags. Despite spending much of his time, even at an early age, in saloons, Billy did not drink, perhaps a defense mechanism that allowed him to keep his wits in potentially threatening situations. His only attempt at a fashion statement 
was a usually colorful sombrero that also protected him from a rigorous southwestern sun. No longer with even a pretense of developing a legitimate vocation, he joined a group of horse thieves loosely led by one Jesse Evans, a criminal entity known as The Boys. Attempting to put some distance between himself and his status in Arizona, Henry began using a pseudonym, William Bonney, which quickly evolved into Billy Bonney, although anyone who knew him well referred to him by his nickname, Kid. The boys typically engaged in petty criminal behavior, ranging from stealing horses to getting drunk in various small towns and shooting up local buildings. Any stagecoaches or travelers that crossed their path typically were robbed at gunpoint, although most didn't usually carry much of anything of value. Evans also had a relationship with two Lincoln County ranchers, John Riley and James Longwell, selling them cut-rate stolen cattle that the two men then sold at a profit to the soldiers at nearby Fort Stanton. The kids spent the fall of 1877 engaging in various bandit behaviors with the boys, including breaking Evans and three Confederates out of the Lincoln County Jail after the gang leader's arrest by a Lincoln County Sheriff's Posse. But he must have become disenchanted with the nomadic lifestyle of these outlaws. When the boys headed south after the jailbreak, Billy Bonney stayed behind. This decision situated Billy the Kid squarely in the midst of a simmering feud that pitted various Lincoln County business entities against each other. For years, two merchants, Lawrence Murphy and James Dolan, operated a large store in the center of Lincoln, New Mexico. This establishment was a monopoly that gouged the locals for basic necessities and clothing and was known negatively as the house. Dolan and Murphy, Civil War veterans, also used their military contacts to provide beef for nearby military installations, a trade marked by shady practices and stolen cattle. Any local residents who even thought of competing were intimidated by the house's known connections, not only to Jesse Evans and the boys, but even to the county sheriff, William Brady. The house's dominance was challenged in late 1876 by a prosperous Englishman named John Tunstall. Tunstall's father was a successful merchant with interests in Canada, and his son emigrated to the southwestern U.S., believing that the rapidly growing area had unlimited economic potential. Settling in Lincoln County, Tunstall, only 22, partnered with Alexander McSween, a Canadian lawyer and former employee of the house. Together they opened up a business and bank in Lincoln that competed directly with Dolan and Murphy. This newly established entity's other partner was John Chisholm, one of the wealthiest ranchers in the Southwest. His herd of cattle numbered over 100,000 and ranged over New Mexico property that covered 150 miles. Tunstall offered cheaper prices and ethical business practices to the citizens of Lincoln, and by early 1878, the house was headed for economic ruin. But Dolan and Murphy were also connected to some of the most prominent politicians in the territory, including Thomas Catron, the territory attorney general, and holder of the mortgage on the house's place of business. New Mexico government, dominated by a group of businessmen and politicians known as The Ring, was notoriously corrupt, and Catron most likely privately encouraged Lawrence Murphy that Tunstall's removal by any means necessary would be legally ignored. 
Katrin himself, through his legal background and knowledge of Spanish land grants, had assembled New Mexico property in excess of 3 million acres, establishing him as one of the largest landowners in the history of the United States. That Dolan, Murphy, and Sheriff Brady were Irish Catholics, and Tunstall and McSween had English and Scottish Protestant origins, only added to the hostility. The House's completely unscrupulous approach to business was evidenced by their hiring of Jesse Evans and the boys, who began to steal Tunstall's cattle and attempt to provoke a gunfight that might immediately eliminate the competition. Tunstall responded by hiring his own bodyguards through his ranch foreman, Richard Brewer. Brewer knew that despite his youth, the kid was crafty and skilled with especially the Winchester rifle, so he added him to Tunstall's cadre of bodyguards. It would not take long for Billy the Kid to get caught up in Lincoln County's volatile situation. A lawyer, Alexander McSween, became involved in complicated litigation over proceeds of a life insurance policy that he eventually obtained for his client. But because this money involved one of Dolan's business partners, McSween did not want to release it, presuming that Dolan would eventually gain control of the cash. This resulted in one of the heirs filing both criminal and civil charges of embezzlement against McSween. This matter was litigated in the nearby town of Messiah, and while McSween was able to postpone any criminal charges, he left the proceeding before being informed that the judge had issued a writ attaching his property for the sum of $10,000. Dolan, also present in Messiah, quickly returned to Lincoln ahead of McSween and had Brady the sheriff form a posse and occupy McSween and Tunstall's property. Brady also began an inventory of both McSween and Tunstall's merchandise under the mistaken impression that Tunstall's assets were owned jointly by both men. Upon returning to Lincoln, the enraged Tunstall returned to his store accompanied by members of his bodyguard, including the kid. He confronted the sheriff, who refused to stop the process of impounding property to satisfy the writ. He must have been at least intimidated by this group of heavily armed men, because he did release a collection of livestock to Tunstall. Within a matter of days, Brady changed his mind. He assembled a posse to reobtain the livestock, mostly horses, that he initially relinquished. On the pretext that Jesse Evans actually owned one of the horses, members of Evans' gang were included in this group. Tunstall eventually came to the conclusion that his ranch was not the best place to stage a confrontation, especially after hearing rumors that Brady was assembling a posse with overwhelming firepower. On February 18th, Tunstall, accompanied by four men, including his foreman Brewer and the kid, set out for Lincoln with the animals in question. During the day, Brady's posse carefully approached what they thought was Tunstall's heavily defended ranch, when the only man present, an elderly caretaker, informed them that Tunstall had left for Lincoln, a smaller group of 14 men, as well as Evans and two other outlaws, immediately began a pursuit. Unfortunately for Tunstall, when this sub-posse caught up with him, his group was disorganized. The kid was trailing Tunstall and the animals, he and another individual providing protection from the rear. On elevated ground, they observed a large group in the distance making its way along the trail and quickly tried to catch up with the rest of the group to warn them. 
business manager Bob Weidenman had wandered off of the trail and the kid went in their direction. The other man, John Middleton, went to warn Tunstall and attempted to lead him to safety. Confused, Tunstall remained on the trail alone and was quickly overtaken by the posse. The kid, Brewer and Weidenman, knew that they would be no match for the posse and quickly took refuge in a wooded, elevated position. From there, they heard the sounds of the gunfire that killed John Tunstall. Officially, he was shot while refusing to surrender. Most likely, he was murdered in cold blood. But the posse, officially deputized by Brady, escaped any legal scrutiny. Content with eradicating Tunstall, the posse retrieved his horses without attempting to pursue either Middleton or the other three, still situated in their defensive position. Now you can be the first kid on your block to own Is That Your Final Answer? The new novel by Philip D. Gibbons. A cross between office space and sex in the city from a male perspective, Is That Your Final Answer? is the hilarious and poignant account of one man's search for love and reason in a cold and irrational world. Now available in paperback and in the Kindle store on Amazon.com. Is That Your Final Answer? Come on, man. What are we talking about? Give me a little break here. Get it today. Eventually, John Tunstall's body was conveyed back to Lincoln. Alexander McSween assumed control over the group allied with Tunstall and against Dolan Murphy and the House. Tunstall's murder energized this group of approximately 50 Lincoln residents who deplored the official corruption of Sheriff Brady and the shamelessly unprincipled authority he represented. But Brady was not the only official presence in Lincoln, and McSween began a barrage of legal maneuvers to retaliate. He got the local justice of the peace to issue warrants implicating members of the posse that killed Tunstall. He also got a warrant for larceny against Sheriff Brady and the occupiers of his store for stealing hay to feed horses during this occupation. While the town's constable, Atanasio Martinez, pondered how he could ever enforce these warrants, Bob Weidenman attempted to access outside assistance. He went to nearby Fort Stanton, informed the command there of Tunstall's violent death, and reminded them that he was a U.S. deputy marshal in possession of federal warrants for the arrest of Evans and other members of the boys for horse thievery. Weidenman returned to Lincoln with a contingent of 30 cavalrymen. The town constable Martinez was emboldened by the presence of these soldiers, and after the cavalry and Weidenman entered Tunstall's former store, now occupied by Brady's contingent and unsuccessfully searched for Jesse Evans, he subsequently entered and served the larceny warrant on all concerned, arresting them as well. But the McSween faction wasn't done. Weidenman informed the commander of the cavalry contingent that he meant to also serve the murder warrants on the Dolan contingent now congregating in Dolan's store. McSween's group numbered over 50 heavily armed and agitated men. Sensing that any attempt by this mob to arrest Dolan and his men by force 
would result in fatalities, the cavalry commander Millard Goodwin informed Weidenman that he could not interfere with his attempt to serve the warrant, but he positioned his soldiers in front of Dolan's store to prevent all but those serving the warrant from entering. Not to be deterred, Weidenman insisted that Martinez should serve the warrants, and to his credit, the constable actually entered the store, accompanied by two other men. One of these men was Billy the Kid. Extremely upset by the murder of Tunstall, the Kid was determined to punish those responsible. Unfortunately, Sheriff Brady had all three men disarmed, told Martinez that neither he or the Justice of the Peace had the authority to arrest him, and detained all three. A few hours later, Brady released the constable, but the two others, including the kid, were not turned loose until a day later, their weapons also not returned. More legal chicanery ensued with another crooked judge refusing to accept McSween's bond, thereby mandating that McSween would have to spend the interval between his criminal trial in Brady's jail, from which most likely he would never emerge alive. McSween responded by temporarily fleeing the immediate Lincoln area, with Dick Brewer now assuming authority over the Tunstall-McSween contingent. This group of men, mostly former ranch hands and citizens outraged by Tunstall's killing, either knew or had worked with each other for many years. They came to be known as the Regulators, and while history ultimately recognized Billy the Kid as the most famous member of this organization, several other individuals were involved, including Doc Skurlock, Charlie Beaudry, John Middleton, Ab Saunders, Jim French, and Frank McNabb. Older than the kid, all of these men had more experience in apprehending cattle and horse thieves and engaging in lethal violence. Although Tunstall paid any of those who aided him before his death, McSween was out of money and could only vaguely promise future compensation. The regulators stuck together anyway, united in their anger over Tunstall's killing, with many also former victims of phony land swindles perpetrated upon new arrivees to Lincoln County by Dolan and Murphy. Dick Brewer, the head of the regulators, already enjoyed official legal status conveyed by Lincoln's Justice of the Peace, and every member of this contingent considered themselves as legally sanctioned to fight the corruption that pervaded Lincoln County. In their own minds, they were not a mob of vigilantes, but rightfully pursuing legal redress. Brewer's initial focus was on apprehending those named in the still outstanding warrant for the murderers of Tunstall. This included Billy Morton, a Dolan employee and the leader of the group which pursued and killed Tunstall on the trail. On March 6, 1878, after a five-mile chase along the backdrop of the Pecos Wilderness, Morton and a member of Jesse Evans's gang, Frank Baker, were apprehended alive. But this presented the regulators with a difficult situation. If they returned their prisoners to Lincoln, they would have to deliver Morton and Baker to the jail of Sheriff Brady, who didn't recognize their authority to begin with. When he subsequently returned to Lincoln, Brewer claimed that Morton grabbed the regulator William McCluskey's pistol and shot and killed him. Morton and Baker then attempted to escape, but they were quickly shot to death by the rest of the regulators. As unconvincing as the official version of Tunstall's death, the details related by Brewer were greeted by the Dolan contingent with equal skepticism. McCluskey was known to be friendly with Morton and a former member of the Matthews gang. Most likely the regulators killed Morton and Baker, and during the proceedings, McCluskey protested and was shot down as well. 
that Morton and Baker's bodies each had 11 wounds, possibly a bullet for each regulator present, also indicated an execution rather than a failed escape attempt. Brewer's return to Lincoln presented him with additional bad news. The governor of the territory, Samuel Axtell, personally visited Lincoln to observe the situation. Also tight with the Dolan contingent and Attorney General Catron, he officially proclaimed that Justice of the Peace Wilson was not occupying his office legally, his warrants were null and void, and that Sheriff Brady and a local judge sympathetic to the House were the only legitimate representatives of the law. Alexander McSween, recently returned to Lincoln, also heard this news and realized that the actions of the regulators could now be classified as murder. If Governor Axtell was intent on intimidating the regulators, his attempt was initially successful, with the group scattering after returning to Lincoln, or as in the case of Billy the Kid, fleeing to the nearby town of San Patricio, where he was known and liked by many of the locals. The April date of McSween's trial was approaching, and the lawyer felt that Sheriff Brady would eventually arrest him, or if convicted, he would eventually wind up murdered in Brady's jail while the sheriff looked the other way. In late March, members of the regulators met at John Chisholm's ranch and hatched a plan to assassinate Brady on the streets of Lincoln in broad daylight. Early on the morning of April 1st, Brady emerged from the Dolan place of business and walked with a group of deputies intent on the courthouse and the proclamation of an official notice that the district court would convene on April 8th, not the 1st, as previously announced. Returning to the Dolan store on foot, this contingent reached the vicinity of the former Tunstall Corral, where six of the regulators were hidden behind a thick wall. The regulators suddenly began an ambush that dropped Sheriff Brady dead and eventually killed another deputy, George Hindman. The other deputies successfully found cover, and when the kid and Jim French ran into the street to attempt to retrieve warrants from Brady's body, they were both wounded in the thigh by the same bullet. They fled back behind the wall, although the kid had to drop Brady's rifle, an item he wanted to atone for the sheriff, disarming him at the previous standoff at Dolan's store. When he arrived later that day, thinking that he was due in court, Alexander McSween feigned ignorance of any plot, but he was detained based on warrants held by Sheriff Brady that were executed by one of his deputies. Luckily for McSween, a cavalry detachment hastily summoned after the violence agreed that he could be taken into custody and held at Fort Stanton. The regulators slipped out of town voluntarily. While the murky death of Billy Morton was still viewed by some residents of Lincoln as justifiable homicide, the assassination of the county sheriff turned local opinion against the regulators, who were now perceived as just as violent and unprincipled as the House. Another incident further darkened the regulators' reputation when, after fleeing Lincoln, they accidentally happened upon a single individual at Blazer's Mill, a man named Andrew Buckshot Roberts. Roberts participated in the posse that attempted to seize Tunstall at his ranch and was named on warrants held by Brewer in Blazer's Mill to pick up mail containing a check possibly waiting for him at the small village. Roberts had no idea of the regulator's presence. One of the regulators, Frank Coe, who knew Roberts, greeted him and attempted to get him to give up without a fight. Roberts adamantly refused to relinquish his rifle, and eventually a gun battle broke out that killed Brewer, 
mortally wounded Buckshot Roberts and would have killed Billy the Kid if Buckshot's gun had not run out of ammunition as the kid attempted to shoot him at point-blank range. Roberts was close enough to knock the kid sideways with his empty rifle and barricade himself in a nearby house, refusing to surrender. Roberts' tenacious mentality prompted the regulators to withdraw, and his subsequent death and tales of his determined resistance at the hands of overwhelming force only endeared him to residents of Lincoln County, who felt the regulators ganging up on a single individual was cowardly. Tired of the relentless violence and the destructive influence of the Dolan-Murphy business monopoly, the citizens made their attitudes known during the grand jury proceedings convened on April 8th. Despite repeated attempts by Judge Warren Bristol, who routinely favored the Dolan-Murphy faction in any pertinent rulings to influence them, they rejected any attempts to indict McSween in the insurance embezzlement matter. In the Tunstall killing, the grand jury indicted Jesse Evans and three of his associates and even added James Dolan as an accessory to murder. But they also showed no favoritism by indicting four of the regulators for the murder of Sheriff Brady, including Billy the Kid. Dolan got more bad news when Attorney General Catron foreclosed on his property, forcing him into bankruptcy and shutting his store for good. Worse, a former butcher from Fort Stanton, John Copeland, was appointed to replace Sheriff Brady, and he quickly formed a friendship with McSween, frequently socializing with the regulators, including members of the group who had outstanding warrants for their arrest. Dolan refused to back down. Some remnants of the group previously deputized by Sheriff Brady asserted that they were still authorized to arrest the four indicted regulators. This alleged posse of over 20 men was led by Billy Matthews and George Pepin, present when Brady was gunned down on the streets of Lincoln. As they headed towards Lincoln, they got word that three regulators, Ab Saunders, Frank Coe, and Frank McNabb, the newly appointed head of the group, were headed in their direction. In the ensuing ambush, McNabb and Saunders were killed and Coe surrendered. The remaining regulators were warned by Copeland that the posse was approaching when he was informed by a messenger of their impending arrival. As he was sitting in McSween's house at the time, word spread quickly. The regulators quickly took defensive positions on rooftops, and when the Dolan faction approached the town, mostly ineffectual gunfire broke out. Copeland requested military intervention from Fort Stanton, and the cavalry arrived in time to detain many of the Dolan faction as well as McSween. All involved were confined at Fort Stanton, but Copeland, not wanting to deal with detaining and eventually prosecuting dozens of men, ultimately turned everyone loose with the admonition to stop fighting, a toothless and unrealistic sanction. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Billy the Kid. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Billy the Kid, A Short and Violent Life by Robert Utley and To Hell on a Fast Horse, The Untold Story of Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett by Mark Lee Gardner. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, 
and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Thank you.